Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. In today's episode, Chip Frederick and I will talk Vanderbilt baseball. The news today presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland and Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at sbinjurylaw.com. Vanderbilt had a rash of football commitments over the 4th of July weekend. There were four of them, Kenzie Paul from Chattanooga, Tennessee, a three-star prospect, Katie Hutchinson from Hamilton, Georgia, also a three-star and unrated Bryce Callen, a defensive back out of Tallahassee. Miguel Mitchell, a defensive back out of Oxford, Alabama. Commodore's looking to shore up their secondary with those last two with some fast players. And there may be more to come later in the week. Chip Frederick joins us. It is a Monday morning. Omaha is in the rearview mirror. But what a what a long, strange trip that was, to, to quote a famous <laughs> music personality. Uh, I have seen a lot of Vanderbilt baseball. I've never seen just a season that from start to finish went down the way that one did. Yeah, Chris, it it was uh, definitely a a strange 72 hours uh, of those three games. And when we talked last time, you know, I kind of broke it down in the fact that as, you know, what the Vanderbilt baseball that people were used to maybe in February, March and part of April, uh, as up and down it is that that had been since then. I mean, we had the t- time when this team was top two, three in the country, top number one team in the country for several weeks. And then you had kind of a stumbling there in mid April rolling into May. And, and you just, the bottom line is this team was 27 outs away from winning a national championship as ugly as it could have been and, and inconsistent as it could have been. And, when we talked, when I was at Rosenblatt uh, doing our last pod, you know, is we kind of touched base on that. That's what we the the summary was, as kind of unusual as as the, the last month or so had been, and inconsistent, and you had some guys not performing, and you had some injuries, and players maybe not playing up their potential. This thing, team still had a chance, but looking as you mentioned in the rearview mirror and, and looking back on it, the better team won the national championship. I, I, I think I'm, I'm convinced in looking at the numbers and having a chance to step back from it. Uh, the more veteran team won the team that was uh, you know, not, not as I think Vanderbilt had a lot of want to, to them, but Mississippi state had a whole hell of a lot of want to and their fan base and, uh, was out there and it was basically a home atmosphere. It was like due to noble. We might as well just played it in Starkville and having some chance to absorb it and watching Tim Corbin's press conference. I mean, I think he was very gracious and I think he kind of knew the same thing. This team just sort of ran out of, ran out of gas and, and um, the injuries caught up to him and some inconsistencies and baseball is a funny sport. And anybody who's played the game competitively and, and for a long time knows that once you start doing some things that, that are inconsistent with the way you've been doing you get into a slump it's more than any game maybe maybe golf is close that you start going down that line and and it starts rolling and it's hard when it starts unraveling to get it back and i think that's just what happened to this team on the on the offensive side production of course i don't think it was necessarily a pitching issue i think kumar rocker was just he was pitching on four days rest and he wasn't used to it and when you're throwing 89 mile an hour fastballs in the third inning instead of 94, 95, it's a huge difference. And and the bats offensively to just wrap it up in a, with, with a bow and pointing at one thing, they just didn't get it done offensively. The injuries caught up with them, the youth, the youth caught up with them and the inexperience. And, and that's what doomed them. Uh, and, and Mississippi state was the better team. Some people have kind of rewound that and, you know, if they do this differently or that differently. No, I think that was going to end the way it did no matter what, given the way those teams were both headed and the health and the stamina and all those things in play. Yeah, and and I think when you – when stepping back from it, which is always good rather than just doing something immediately after a game and you you kind of take it uh, the 30,000-foot view, I mean – just the little things of baseball that baseball demands when you have, when you, when I would sit there and watch 
Rowdy, Rowdy Jordan, who's been there forever. I mean, those guys, you know, those guys, if they had a 401k plan that participated for players, these guys would be rich now. I mean, they, 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 that's its name, Rowdy Jordan, Tanny, Tanner Allen, and those guys. When you see when you see Jordan up there fighting pitches off and hitting them foul, wasting pitches from Rocker left and right, and hitting them in the upper deck, and just just having his will as far as choosing pitches. And then he goes the other way from the left side and hits the ball down the line, goes with the pitch and drives the ball down the left field line. And I turned to my friend and I said, you know, we don't have a guy in our lineup who would do that. And and that is just with maturity and experience and being around the game and understanding the game and understanding pitchers and the way they're going to try to throw you. And I really do, I, I don't remember a time when this team – in the in the College World Series, or maybe in the last month, I know there were, but it just didn't stand out to me, that would hit the ball, simple things like hitting the ball the other way. And I think that's a point in this game that we're in today, in today's college game, and maybe probably the pro game, with launch angles and guys trying to hit the ball out of the park and heavy strikeout numbers. You're going to get heavy home run power numbers, but you're also going to get heavy strikeout numbers. And just playing the little things of hitting the ball the opposite way that are the, some of these kids, I think, I don't think that they're not being told to do that. I don't think that they don't work on it, but that's just one thing that stood out to me of a veteran team. You know, Mississippi state was just a, they, they are the epitome of, and I know they have guys, you know, from all over the country, uh, you know, that, that play for their team. Um, I mean, you know, you've got, Landon Sims is from St. Louis, but they were just a good old Southern baseball, gritty, passionate, love their school, going to do anything they could experience baseball team. And, and that's what, that will be my memory of Mississippi state. Uh, my memory of this year's team will be a young injured, often injured, with a lot of, uh, of, of unfortunate injuries, very talented, um, very good pitching staff, above average top two guys, but a team in the end that I think just got bat tired and and it all caught up with them. Not that, again, not that they didn't have the passion. And I saw those guys very focused in the hotel before game three when they were walking out in front of their fan base that they do every day from the hotel on the way to the stadium. I thought they were very focused. But in talking to a coach who I respect very much, who has some some um, ties to the national team, uh, his experience as a coach and local high school coach here. And, and he said the same thing. He said something that resonated with me. He said to me, seeing those guys, the way their demeanor was in the dugout after game two, it didn't change in game three. Uh, they looked the same after game two as they did before game three. They still had a little bit of the weariness tiredness deer in the headlight that maybe for some of these kids it was catching up with them and the moment was too big you look back at the guys they had hurt this year and i've never seen anything like it i think it was that way not just for them for a lot of teams though but major injuries okay you had cooper davis foul a ball off his face the first at bat of the season he was a guy that I think this, if the season goes the, the way you think it's going to go, he had, what, a a 420 career on base percentage coming in. He would have been a top-of-the-order guy, uh, would have given them a guy to, to get on and, and make stuff happen. He was never the same after that. Tate Colwick leading them in home runs when he breaks his handmate on, what was it, game three against South Carolina, never homered the rest of the year. Never got in the lineup for more than just a couple games at a time. From there, gets hurt again in the regional. Isaiah Thomas had a couple of small injuries, had a leg issue, had a hand issue at one point. That was minor. Carter Young, I'll just go through the major ones. I'll consider Thomas a minor, but Davis and Colwick would be more major. Carter Young, never the same after that shoulder came out of socket on, I think, May the 11th. Um... Ethan Smith, never the same after the COVID quarantine, just screwed up his routines and his conditioning through, what, 11 innings this year. That's a kid that if he's healthy, they could have used him in Omaha. It just wasn't in the cards. Miles Garrett got hurt, what was it, six, seven weeks ago, done for the year at that point. He would have helped them in the bullpen out there. Spencer Jones, 
missed what the first month or so, a couple of weeks, whatever it was, from a hitting standpoint. He didn't even hit off the tee, I think, until the first week of February. And he, he had six months where he just had to sit it out or so. So there was that. Of course, didn't pitch at all because of the arm injury. Sam Laboki goes out in, gosh, I can't remember which series it was now. I want to say maybe Alabama. Uh, he was done for the year. They may not get him next year. Michael Doolin had, I think, Tommy John surgery, never threw a pitch this year. And then you want to go minor injuries. Enrique Bradfield was banged up out there. Jack Leiter, not injured, but missed a start uh, just to, to recover. Dominic Keegan missed two weeks. Really never hit the same consistently after that the way he was hitting. Again, that's a COVID-19 quarantine thing that, that threw him off. And then you go Brett Hansen who comes off of a Mormon mission and just never got into baseball shape, never got his arm in the shape that he needed to be to pitch. That's what, 13 guys right there, I think? It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's, and it's a lot of talent in that list. And, yeah, I mean, and everybody gets banged up, but I think that's probably – well, it's not probably. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's the most injuries that's ever been in the Corbin era here at Vanderbilt, just one after the other. And you take a – you put some of those guys in the experience that was possibly needed and uh, in Omaha in a situation and, and that what they were facing with the crowd and the team that was very hungry, Mississippi state, it could have made a big difference. Everybody deals with injuries, however, but looking back, you know, four or five days after the event is over now, it, it, it is a testament really. And some have said this, that they were able to get that far that they did, that they were still, you know, 27 outs, as I said, from winning a national championship. And um, sometimes as you don't, as, as Tim Corbin has said, you don't have to be the best team all year. You have to be the best team for that 10, 12 day period. And they almost uh, very well did it uh, by, you know, band-aiding things and with duct tape and whatever to, to get them there. But, um, you, you know, you, you look at far as, you know, Hoboki was the way he pitched last year, even in the shortened season, he was dominant. I mean, he was completely dominant during the shortened season of 2020. And then he had a great, you know, February, early March. He was not matching that, but he was almost just as good and where he would have figured into the, the situation. So, you know, I'm not looking for excuses and saying that it would have made a difference because you never know really how it would have played out. But those are some talented names. 13 names, I think you just mentioned that out of, you know, 35, 36 regulars, that's a third of your roster that at one point was injured. And, and that could have definitely changed the outcome uh, along the way and definitely in the championship series. Well, I don't know that they're going to win the championship series anyway, given how they threw. You could maybe make an argument that Laboki, Doolin, Ethan Smith, maybe they get in the pitcher's duel and, and squeeze out a, a two-to-one win in the ninth, the game two, maybe maybe you could say that. that The issue was they hit so little at the end. I just think that seemed to dictate everything, and, and, and maybe it was going to end the same way no matter how much pitching they had. But I go back and I think the two injuries that might have hurt them the most in terms of postseason. I think regular season you can make the argument that the pitching, you know, that goes differently. Maybe they win the SEC. Again, I don't know that it changes anything in the College World Series uh, because they just didn't hit. They had to have runs somewhere they weren't getting them. But I think the Colwick and Young injuries, you could argue that for the postseason were the two biggest ones because neither of those kids were anywhere near what they'd been before that. Yeah, and I, and I think that in the seriousness of the Carter-Young situation, I think it's a given that he's going to have a procedure here fairly soon, um, you know, on his shoulder to clean things up, and which, you know, I, I think, Carter Young probably was telling people that he was on a scale of one to 10. He was okay. He was maybe an eight or nine. And I think Corbin alluded to that. I, he was maybe a four. I mean, there, it was really affecting him from the right side so much when he was hitting so much to the point that I'm really surprised that he just didn't hit from the left side, the, the way that it was bothering him. And just even against the lefties um, instead of switch hitting, because it was really the dynamics of trying to swing with the injury he had. It was, I'm sure it had to be painful, and he's a he's a very gritty kid, and he was uh, doing what he had um, all given all he had uh, for the for the team and and what they needed at the shortstop position. But it just compounded things and made some uncharacteristic errors uh, that he didn't make, and had some unfortunate thing in the ball getting stuck in his glove, which I've never seen before. 
uh, in a game that I've ever been watching. Just some crazy weird things. And and defensively, this team, it seemed like in watching the three games, it was always something like that. Carter Young gets the ball stuck in his glove. Two batters later, Mississippi State, you know, it gets a big hit in the gap and they score a couple runs. The the seemed to be routine double play ball to Kumar Rocker in game three. And he looked like he didn't get his feet set. I don't know if Nolan could have maybe handled it and blocked it. Maybe could have, should have. Of course, next thing we know, you know Mississippi State scores and, and they're off to the races in game three on a simple, simple play that they made. There's some throwing errors at third base, you know, which we've been accustomed to and something that, you know, needs to be cleaned up for next year, whoever's going to play the three-bag spot. I mean, Gonzalez just didn't, didn't had some inconsistencies there that were not normal from what you have, you know, he, he, that you would like to see from that position. And, you know, he had 15 errors that led the team, and it was nobody, I think, the closest, next closest with Keegan of nine. So those are little things that just seemed like defensively it was, you know, you had these errors and miscues and they always led to something out in Omaha that was not in their favor. And and that's what baseball, the baseball gods, that's the way the karma works. You do something, you, you don't feel the ball cleanly. You don't make a routine double play turn. And next thing you know, the other team capitalizes uh, and, and, and they're off the races, as I said, and, and scoring runs. And that's what you just can't have in the championship series. Next year, let's talk about next year for a bit. Actually, let's not. Let's go to the mailbag, and then let's talk about next year. Our mailbag is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of your insurance needs. Call him today, 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuminton.hq or facebook.com, jdmintonhq. He's my insurance agent. Give him a try. Tell me, heard about his business on the Vandy Sports Podcast. Ann Arbordor says the term tired bats was used to describe Vanderbilt in Game 3. What does that mean? Is there a strength and conditioning aspect? I don't think it's necessarily. It's a little bit of that. You, you get some bodies that get tired, and we mentioned the banged up. I mean, guys been nicked up and banged up, and you had Bradfield's situation with it was a knee or a hamstring, one or the other, and we knew it had to be something with the legs. and. That was probably the best kept secret out in Omaha the first 10 days when, and then you just had to be, you know, goodness, you know, the guy's not stealing a base. He still had, he hadn't stole a base in three weeks, I think, um, going back to the regional. So you had to almost think something was going on there, but, uh, you know, so it's a little bit of physical issue where you get some guys and then you get to a point where you're, it's, it can be also mental when you're talking about tired back. It's just your mental approach when you're struggling and you're not uh, doing the little things at, at the plate, taking the ball the other way, like I mentioned, and you start pressing. And when a, when a baseball player like a golfer, like I mentioned, starts pressing, it can get real ugly real fast. So I think in that when mentioning that in the press conference, and I think you're the one who asked him if this team got tired, it is physical, but it's also, it's just as much as psychological mental that uh, you're, you're doing the same things over and over again and you're not having a chance. I mean, you can go in the cage uh, out in Omaha, wherever they practice in between times and try to correct it. And I'm sure there was um, an, an attempt to do that by Mike, Mike Baxter and staff, but it sometimes gets so taxing and so overwhelming um, from the mental side as much as it is the physical side, as far as it being the tired bats. Um, and, and you, you know, I, you talk about Carter Young's situation. I mean, it had to be pretty painful that he's having surgery this week or the next couple of days to swing a bat, even swing a bat. And the fact that that kid was able to come back was a testament to his fortitude. But it, it for him, I think it got into his head more than anything, no matter what, how much of a fighter you are. When you have something that has to have a procedure going to be done to tighten up some uh, some ligaments or wherever in your shoulder because of your your uh, dislocated shoulder that that has to do uh, have a lot to be said about that. So I think it's it is physical. Yes, it's this, this the drain the the going through the season on the physical side, but it's also emotional and and psychological as well. I want to ask you something um, because you are into the travel ball scene. You've got a kid who plays. By the way, how's how's the travel ball scene these days? Do you see anybody yeah. interesting in your in your trips? 
No, it, it's really it's light travel ball. This is just the West Nashville League, and it's a it's a eight year old baseball as much as that could be. We're we're not into the travel ball situation, so uh, no, it, it hasn't seen haven't seen any of the um, explosive uh, issues with parents and all that lately. We were down in Lewisburg and and um, this weekend and played a little tournament down there, but it's it's competitive baseball, but we we haven't made the leap to the to the travel ball situation. Uh, not sure if we're going to go that route, maybe, but um, it is. And I saw where Willie Donick, who's an old teammate of mine, he was down in uh, Hoover, Alabama last night. He tweeted something. It was, his son plays. It's, he's at university school, and he was down on July 4th down in Hoover playing baseball last night. Um, we're not there yet, but just uh, it was great to see some guys down there. Jason Maxwell, the head coach at Innsworth, who's, who's the uh, national team coach. He's going to be the 18-year-old coach. Jason's a great guy who uh, played at MTSU, played played with the Cubs and the Twins on the big league level, and got to see him. He's ironically from Lewisburg, that's where he's from, and texted him and told him I was down there. And ironically, he was down there, so uh, it was great to see Jason. And he actually, Jason, Jason coached uh, Christian Little on the on the 16 year old national team. He also coached Carter Young, and uh, and he knew a lot of those guys. Yeah, I think he coached Berkwich. Uh, our lefty, who I think was, I was really impressed with him, how he came along the, uh, the last couple weeks. You know, he hadn't pitched in a while, but his last four or five innings, I was really impressed with him. So it was good seeing Jason down there, and he's going to be taking off uh, this September in the national games for the 18-year-olds for the USA team. He is the skipper of that team, and so I'm real, I was real happy to see him. Good guy. What, what is the atmosphere in the stands like? Um at those things, Chip. <laughs> we, there was a Whistler sighting. No, no. There was a Whistler sighting, you know, I, I, in, in Lewisburg, Tennessee. I, t- I texted a buddy of mine and I said, you know, I spent 72 hours with Whistler. Well, not with the Whistler, in the Whistler's presence. And uh, I go to uh, Lewisburg, Tennessee and um, for eight-year-old baseball and I, my daughter who doesn't even he's been to one or two baseball games with me this year she taps me on the show and he said daddy look it's the whistler and so i look over to my right and here an hour and 20 minutes from nashville due south there he is and in, in all his glory so uh i didn't talk to him my son wanted to go get a picture but he was i think he was there for grandson watching on not on not on our game it was on another field so uh you know he, he's everywhere I'm lucky he made it out of there alive. I have not. I've heard some stories, of not so great treatment of some Vanderbilt fans. I was um, guy got up and got up in my face uh, at, at the concession stand, just unwarranted. Some Mississippi State 25 year old guy, uh, like he wanted to fight me because I had a Vanderbilt T-shirt on, and he said something about 11.7 something unintelligible i guess he was talking about the scholarship how do you like that 11.7 whipping your butt or something like that and and i i I think that's what he said or meant and i just kind of shoot him off um but there was a little bit of that going on and i can only imagine the whistler um got his share of it uh, as he left the park was there any whistling at uh youth baseball games no he knows no whistling no none there was not not even a uh, not, there was none of that going on. It was uh, quite pleasant. So, but but not, that fires up the kids, right? <laughs> I, I don't know, but he was, we he we, was don't, we don't wanna, we don't want we don't want to fire up eight year olds too. <clears throat> right, I don't I don't think so. I think okay. uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure how that goes, but there was I can report from Lewisburg that there was no whistling. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll get off that. Um, <laughs> Oh, that was that was too funny not to ask. I know. Um, here's here's what I was going to go on the second part of this. Okay, I'm watching Fourth of July fireworks last night, uh, and I've got a neighbor whose son plays some travel ball. He's I think a sophomore in high school, and we just had conversations about how crazy it is. Um, and he sent me a schedule about a local team that was having an 83 game schedule, which is just absurd. And here's where I'm going to connect the dots on the earlier part of this show. We talk about pitcher usage and pitch counts and all sorts of stuff, and you're seeing at the major league level injuries at 
an epic level, you know, that we've never seen before. You're seeing it in college. We talked about how Vanderbilt had never had. And I, I would say, you tell me if you disagree, I think that the number of injuries they had this year was probably three or four times whatever his second, his worst year for injuries coming into this year had been, that, that being Tim Corbin. And, and frankly, it's probably more than that. But in any case, you're seeing guys drop at a record l- rate all across baseball. The technological end has never been better, what they can monitor in terms of workload and this, that, and the other. I mean, things you and I probably can't even conceive. So you would think that these players are in better condition than they've ever been in. You have the technology more so than you've ever seen to to sense and prevent injuries. I'm wondering if we're not pointing the finger in the wrong places. Maybe it's not the pro and the college levels. I wonder how much buildup there is of workload of kids before they even show up on a campus or to a rookie ball team. And I really have to wonder with as much ball as kids are playing, and I think you probably say this goes for basketball too, I have to wonder how much of the issue that is the wear and tear we are putting on players when they're literally just kids. I think it's a, I think it's a huge issue, Chris. Uh, I've talked about this before um, several weeks ago on your show about the driveline, and I'm not picking on driveline. There's, there's, uh, there's other groups or organizations or theories about you know the, trying to join the, the 90 mile an hour club and 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 where velocity is seen to be king and and pretty much it is king. And let's just let's say what it is. Throwing, uh, there were there were guys I played with um, in the late '80s and early '90s that were out in Omaha, and we had this discussion. Some we ran, I ran into them. It's kind of gotten to be a, a routine thing where the we kind of meet out in Omaha and ran into a bunch of old pitchers, friends of mine, and just marveling at the fact that how hard these kids are throwing. And we we said. Uh, compared notes about who threw back then over 90. And it's the same things I've said on your podcast before. The Ben McDonald's could and the Russell Springer's and the Greg Olson's would. But other than that, you were top, you know, upper 80s is the hardest you you, threw, you saw guys throw consistently. And I think there's there's a push with kids, bigger, stronger, faster, kids learning to use their legs and, and you, use these different different techniques. And again, I'm not bad-mouthing drive line again is that's kind of like saying you know a copier is xerox you know i'm gonna go get a xerox i mean using that name is drive line is pretty much the leader out there as far as what these kids are doing but there's all sorts of different ways to get it done as far as reaching and pitching 90 miles an hour because you feel like if you throw over 90 you're going to get seen and if you don't you're not and i mean i would say if you went up and down i mean when you have i didn't realize at all that Berkwich Nelson Berkwich threw a pitch 93 miles an hour the other night in Omaha I saw it on the board I thought he was upper 80s tops um, when he was throwing against Missouri a month or two ago I could have sworn he topped out in the upper 80s he threw a pitch 93 94 miles an hour so you can go up and down the Vanderbilt pitching roster and I would say almost every one of those guys consistently throws 90 miles an hour that was unheard of unheard of 15 20 years ago and so, yes, there is a lot of wear and tear that's going on these kids. There's there's uh, some the overuse aspect, and I think it's being under the microscope by a lot of of, of coaches against one another, and, and that you know we treat our pitching staff like this way, and look at what school X or Y is doing to their pitchers, and that's being conveyed to their parents, and you know, and, and so. It, but it, you're right. I think it's a very observant point that it does start in the, the upper, the, the the high school travel ball, the youth travel ball programs, and that has to be analyzed because when you're getting Tommy John surgery, almost as a as a maintenance issue, when when you're going to shut it down and just well, I'm just going to get Tommy John, that's not normal. That that you know, a, a doctor told me one time. Uh, Sorry for repeating this, but he he's a surgeon here in Nashville. He, he's done Tommy John's before. He's 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 one of the preeminent surgeons in Nashville. Let's just put it that way. And he said that the human elbow really can only stand about a the torque and the and the strain on a consistent basis of is 93 miles an hour. That's pretty much where anything after that, unless you're very well conditioned, strong, 
you stretch, you do the different things that are necessary to do that. But 93 miles an hour is your benchmark to where the strain on the on that elbow and that ulnar collateral ligament is reaching its max. And so when you got guys throwing harder than that on a consistent basis and they're not monitoring it, they're not taking proper rest, that's 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 a huge problem. So I think what you're seeing is uh, now I, I know for a fact Christian Little's in summer school at Vanderbilt. He's not pitching this summer. And I think that's probably a good idea. Not saying that, you know, when you look at Christian Little's numbers, let's see, how many innings did he have this year? He had 42 and two-thirds. That's not a whole lot of work for a guy, but he's 17 years old, and and he will be he'll be turning 18 by the way this week. I, I was just informed, and that's just incredible to me. But finishing it up here, Chris, I, I think you're seeing a lot of less guys not pitching as much in the summer as they used to, where they would go to the national team or they would go to the Cape. I think that's kind of cooled down a little bit, and I think it's smart, especially the guys that have the huge numbers and who are working on this, trying to working with the heavy balls and working, trying to get doing all they can to throw 90 plus and doing that strain on their arm. I think you're seeing a little back down of the guys. Once they get into college, there's not that push and that need to feel like that they have to go to Alaska or they have to go to the Cape and do that extra work after they've had a bunch of innings uh, collegiately. Next question. VU Matt 23 asks, Pick two hitters and two pitchers you think will improve the most from 2021 to 2022. Hmm. Well, um, you know, that's on the pitching side. When you talk about improvement, I'm, I'm interested to see what Michael Doolin does. Uh, you know, I, that's that's one, of course, who wasn't even on the board. We didn't get to see it all. Um, so that's one as far as improvement. I'm, I'm looking to see if. The other the other one would probably be Christian Little just for the fact of how much he matures from being around the team for a full year and maturity from just natural maturity. Um, I'm interested to see also Hoboke and how he can come back after a surgery. I'm going to give you three there on the pitching side, how he can come back after having really a stellar campaign, although it was abbreviated, as I mentioned, and then being really good this year. Those would be three. On the hitting side, you know, it, it really seems that before I give you my answer of who gets drafted and who leaves, that, that that's that's a tough one because I, I would, you know, you got a couple guys who are question marks. I don't think CJ Rod what do you what is your opinion on Rodriguez? What are you hearing? I don't think he's a top I'm not hearing top four rounds, so I would think he would come back. Are you hearing what are you hearing on him? He is rated two thirty six at MLB.com this morning, and what I'm hearing is he's probably coming back. Okay, well that that would be good. Um, I'd like to see what you know Colwick, Colwick as far as what he's going to have coming back from his injury in a full year because I was really impressed with that kid. Uh, those would be two that I'd be interested on the offensive side because I think you know my question marks, Chris, if looking to next year are second, third, and first. Not necessarily who. I want to see who's going to play there, but I think those are the holes that you have to get. I know in in talking to some people in baseball that there's some freshmen uh, coming in next year. Uh, Davis Diaz from California here is a stud on the middle infield. There's going to be some, there's several middle infielders who are coming in in this freshman class who I think will push. Uh, you know, Rob Gordon out of Georgia, he's a, he's a shortstop who could convert into a second baseman. So there's going to be a lot of competition, I think. But those are the holes I think they're going to have to fill. And they could do musical chairs and move some guys around. But second, third, and first are the places where I think this team needs to find an identity in the fall. Uh, I'd love to see them get some donkey out there. You got, you know, big guy who can a little more power at one of those spots, especially maybe third who can hit some home runs and hit for power. And, and that's what I think they need uh, from those spots, too, from third and first. It would be nice to get some guys with some power with a lot of pop. But the, those are the, uh, the – as far as offense and pitching, those are my choices who I'm looking for next year. This season of the podcast made possible by Jody Jones, DDS. Jody is the top cosmetic and general dentist in Nashville. He's a former Commodore football player. He's a Vanderbilt sports booster as well. Go see him today. It's not like any dentist's office you have ever been to. It was described to me before I saw it as a tooth spot. That's really what it is. 
It's this really beautiful, engaging, relaxing atmosphere. You go in, you get your tea serviced by the best in the business, and Jody has got a client list that proves it. It's athletes, it's movie stars, it's entertainers, it's coaches. When people in the Nashville area have dental needs, Jody is the guy they go to for those. Go see him at his suite today, 55 Music Square East. Tell him you heard about his business on the Vandy Sports Podcast. Thank him for that because without him, this season of the podcast would not be possible. Yeah, my pick for pitching, I would probably go Little and Riley. I think both those kids are really talented, especially Little. It's just refining the other stuff. Hitting-wise, I'm with you. I kind of want to see who's back. Uh, Dominic Keegan, another guy that I, I really th- – that could go a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, it could. That, that could go a whole lot. I mean, if, if Dominic Keegan comes back, I'm not kidding. I think Dominic Keegan, under the right circumstances, could be player of the year in this league next year. I think he's he could. that talented a hitter. Um, he, he could get drafted in, in round three or four by a team that really loves him. Or, or teams could be scared off by the – the strikeouts, the way that he hits, or, or maybe didn't hit as much in the SEC and lay off him. I, and he's a first baseman, so it's a place where it's assumed you're going to hit. So, I mean, that one is one that could go all kinds of different places. I think he and Rodriguez would be on the list. I think they could both have better seasons next year than this year. But the guys I'm kind of circling are Spencer Jones. You saw him come on a little bit later in the year, uh, start taking some walks. And Jack Bolger's another one. I, I love Jack Bolger. I really think that kid – is a stud of a hitter. I don't know if he got banged up or tired or what it was or just it was a book on him or what the deal was. But I think Jack Bolger is going to be an All-American before he's done here. And I think those are two kids that could take a huge leap up next year. Yeah, there's not, there's not a uh, lack of talent. I mean, let, let's just say as far as where they came in and their their um, star rankings and what they did in the past, of course, none of that matters. I mean, you got to perform, but there, there's a lot. You go up and down that list. There's guys who who were pitchers, as you mentioned, with you know Jones, who hadn't even pitched yet, and he was a top 100 prospect, uh, and he he was sitting 96, 97 as a senior in high school. So there's a lot of 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 names there that have the ability to plug some of these holes. You and I have talked every year since we've been doing this, Chris. It seems like every one of the last podcasts, we talk about the the task that Tim Corbin has to do with the roster management. And you've also done some charts, which are great. I mean, I don't know how you have the time to do this, but I've seen it before. You know, you do it in basketball, uh, and you've done it before, more so in basketball and baseball that I remember charting who's going to be around based on expectations and who's coming in. But what are the have they signed 18? I mean, it, it, the numbers and what I'm saying is, is it's remarkable that the job that this staff has to do to manage that roster. And then you got a COVID year when the roster was 40, but that's not going to happen anymore. You, 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 they're probably going to back that thing back, back to the normal. What is it? 34, 35. So six, yeah. 30, yeah. So there's five that are already aren't going to be able to come back. And then you have to manipulate the roster of, okay, what if a player really wants to, you know, doesn't get drafted a junior, wants to take that red shirt year given by the NCAA because of COVID. So how do you handle that? You're not expect when you sign 18 guys, you're not expecting to have COVID. Uh, Some of these kids have been committed for several years, the way it works right now. And so how do you manage that? when you've got guys who said, well, I didn't really get drafted or coach. I, I, I want to try to win a national title. I'm going to stay, or I didn't have as great of a year as I wanted to. And I, and then that has to be nerve wracking in itself because then you have people who you sign out of the 18. What if you got three or four that go pro the roster management thing is, is insane to me as far as how they, these guys get it done when I'm talking the staff, because it is, you're swinging that's something that you cannot see and you have no idea how it's going to work until the draft happens. And so every year, of course, they lose two, three, four, five guys from it. But then this whole thing, this wrench we're throwing into as far as who wants to come back. And there's some very, very hard decisions and discussions that have to be made. You've already seen four are already in the portal. Three are to be expected. Uh, Romero probably realizes, I think that's an indication he probably sees the writing on the wall that that CJ's coming back. So when having said that, you know, it, it, 
I don't know if you have any more comments about that, but I think this has got to be one of the toughest years for roster management that Corbin and crew have to deal with. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's not fun to do as coach. You recruit these kids because you want them and you feel like they're going to make an impact on the program. And it seems like every year after year one, two, one or two, you got to sit and have frank discussions with them. Well, you know, I don't think you're going to play here or I don't see you being a contributor here. You can stay in school, but I don't have a spot for you. And that's got to be nerve wracking. Uh, if you're a guy who really uh, like Tim Corbin, who it's a family, he takes these guys, he and Maggie treats these, these players like their kids. And it's got to be a disappointing thing to turn around and tell them a year or two later that I just don't have a spot for you anymore. Yeah, thanks for the comments on the roster charts. I have done those religiously for a few years. I've just kind of thrown my hands up the last few months, basically in all sports, uh, because I want to have something out there that's pretty accurate. And it's just hard to know. Uh, and, and I guess I could do one for baseball. It might have, you know, 65 guys on there for some seasons. And I probably need to, to get to doing that. It's it's time, it's it's detailed, it's, you don't want to make a mistake. It's I just, rather than <laughs> rather than put up something that, that might not be right, I've just kind of punted. I'll get back to that soon. But, yeah, I mean, that that's it. It's just become a nightmare to try to track these things and the possibilities, you know, be, between the transfer portal and just all the stuff that's out there. Uh, God help you if you're trying to put together what a roster might look like. I mean, even after the summer, and the dust has settled on the draft. I wonder how easy it's going to be. Yeah, and the tra- we haven't gotten. I didn't even mention the transfer portal. Thanks for bringing that up. I mean, the, the transfer portal can work both ways. Now, a place like Vanderbilt, with the academic situation, it's a little harder. But I mean, if you are a, I'm going to throw this out for an example. Miami of Ohio has a, a pitcher, and I forgot his name. I was looking at the MLB draft. The kid that throws one hundred three or whatever. Yeah, he's yeah. Uh, he's he's he sits one hundred one, one hundred two consistently, and he's going to be probably a top five pick. Now let's just pretend that that guy is um, a, a Sam, Sam Bachman. By the way, is the name. Okay, yeah, okay, Sam. Let's pretend that guy's a sophomore. Let's pretend that there's somebody like a Sam Bachman out there, and he's saying to himself, you know, well, I, I want to go to a Vanderbilt. I want I'm going to I'm going to get in the portal and go and pitch against better and raise my stock for next year. Who knows how many of those discussions are going out there? The conversations where through the inner workings of high school coaches or travel ball that they're calling this staff and saying, you know, that the number one pitcher at I'm going to make this up because Princeton or Duke or someone who wants to pitch in the SEC who is a freshman or sophomore and wants to fill a spot. And, and, and so they work that out. So not only do you have. Number one, I mentioned the guys who maybe want to come back. Number two, the uncertainty for the draft. You don't know how that's going to go with your incoming class. And then the portal. You might have some a, a guy who could step right in who could be a sophomore or junior on your team who has experience in pitching big games who could help you. So there's a lot to be uh, that these guys are already working on, I'm sure, through the channels that, that are available to them to try to, to identify what their roster is going to be like. I'm surprised – Personally, I'm surprised there's only four people in the portal at Vanderbilt. I'm sure there'll be more with some maybe discussions, um, but I'm, I was surprised uh, when looking at that there was only four the other day. You know, I want to see how the draft goes, and I want to try to save maybe a couple of podcasts, maybe a, a preview for the draft, and then maybe a wrap-up after it's over uh, that, that you and I can do if we've got some time. So I want to leave some meat on the bone here, but – I think that their lineup next year, Chip, could be almost 2019 good. And I know that sounds crazy because they just went to, to Omaha and they, they just flat out could not hit. But do you regroup with this bunch of kids, knowing what it's like to go through things, getting them all healthy, adding a couple of guys? Uh, I think, again, Rodriguez and Keegan coming back would be huge for them. But I could see a scenario similar to 2019 where they get these juniors and seniors back who under the right circumstances could have gone pro but maybe didn't I think think they have a big opportunity now I don't, I don't think there's an Austin Martin and a Bladé in there so it's not an exact comp but I think that could be probably a top five offense in America next year I, it's not hard for me to see it well here's the reality of it Bednar at Mississippi State he's a kid I think he's from Pennsylvania and 
he's an older kid like Jack Leiter, and he's going to go in probably the first round. Some people have him go into the Cardinals. Uh, I think it's 16, or I'm not sure where the Cardinals draft. Bedner, in the COVID-shortened season of 2020, he had four appearances, maybe five. He started one, and four of those were in relief. Not exactly a guy who you would think would be pitching and went being the College World Series MVP the next year. I mean, you got to wonder if there's a Bednar on this staff who is sitting there because he didn't, he started one game. Now, granted, Chris, the season was shortened in 2020, but he wasn't even, they played some weekend series. He only started one of those. So what he did was amazing in a year's time to, to, the, to the point where he went this year and he he's the College World Series MVP. So you got to hope that, you know, like we've mentioned these guys, uh, Michael Doolin, Miles Garrett, Brett Hansen, Haboki. Is, is there somebody sitting there in the weeds who, with another year of development of getting stronger and bigger and faster and getting in the weight room and working on pitches, you just never know. And that's my point about Bednar, that, that you got a guy who's a first rounder who's just sitting there and wasn't even a consistent starter a year ago. Okay, I'll give you a for instance, Grayson Garvin. Grayson Garvin was a kid who was, you know, a, a moderately used reliever as a freshman, but nobody was going into 2011 saying Grayson Garvin is this burgeoning SEC pitcher of the year, which is what he turned out to be. I'll give you an example. In Arkansas, Andrew Benatendi went from anonymity. Uh, no, he, he'd been known some in high school, but he didn't do a lot as a freshman. National Player of the Year as a sophomore. Kids like that take jumps all the time. Yeah, exactly. And you, you just wonder if there's a guy like that, you know, who, 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 well, you know, Brett Hansen, who, you know, he went on a Mormon mission, and he's an older guy. How old's Hansen? Do you know? I mean, I know. I mean, I, I would presume he is twenty-one-ish. I mean, but let's yeah. think about okay, he. He he missed what would have been his freshman and sophomore year, so I would presume he would have turned nineteen and twenty those years. Maybe I can find this on Google here in a second as we're talking, but I would think this would have been his age twenty one season at some point, okay. unless he had a birthday in the summer. Right, and so you know you got a kid like that. I know he's already playing summer ball, and and seen some reports about him. He's had some you know four, five, six outings. So guys like that. Who who could be who could be step out of the forefront and say like where'd this guy come from? So it's an excess of riches, and a lot of teams have it. But that's when you have that's why you have top one, two, three recruiting classes. That's why this year's recruiting class is seen to be either one or two or three, whichever you check at. Next year is already seen as being one, two or three. And so when you have that much talent, it's just about sometimes about timing. It's about luck. It's about getting the work in. It's about having a great fall and stepping out of, of your shadow and and showing your true colors. And, and that's what we're hoping for. And every team in America is hoping for, every staff is hoping for, that somebody will step through like a Bedner did. I'm not saying Bedner was an unknown, that people didn't know about him. But just in a year's time, my, my point is in a year's time how, like you just said, the jump can be tremendous. Hanson, by the way, turns 21 on November 5th of this year. Okay. And he'll, and so, okay. And he didn't pitch this year. So technically, he's going to be a 21 year old freshman. So. Yeah. And I want to do it in a, a side too. And we've mentioned this before, but I, I think it's worth to mention again. And there's also a couple of things uh, to, to get to with this. I just think that no team, not a lot of elite teams were hurt more by 2020 than they were, right? First of all, you had a shortened draft. Well, basically, just about everybody that they anticipated getting drafted got drafted and went. So there was that. You had some other schools that had guys that might have gone in rounds 6 through 10 and a lot of other places gone. Mississippi State, I think, would be a great example, potentially, of that. So everybody else in a normal year was going to lose some players they didn't. Um, all of Vanderbilt's kids, now, now where they caught a break was Enrique Bradfield Jr. And and maybe he was coming anyway, I don't know. I, I, I don't remember really what I was thinking on him this time a year ago. But point being that, that you had that. So they lose Mason Hickman, who 
man, a few more picks go by, and he doesn't go. He's back in this rotation this year. Uh, they lose their closer, Tyler Brown. They lost. Here's one. Have you seen what Jake Eater's been doing? I've heard about it, yeah. Impressive. Well, let, yeah. let me let me pull it up. Jake Eater, you talk about development, because last we saw him, he was really struggling. This is what Jake Eater is doing at AA this year. 52 and two-thirds innings, 28 hits, six earned runs, one home run allowed, 76 strikeouts, 20 walks, a 1.03 ERA, a .92 whip. Double A ball. I, I just, yeah, I mean, I should have mentioned this earlier in the show, but you have to add that as a layer of context. I mean, if any, I know people are mad they didn't win the whole thing, and I get it, and people are going, well, unlimited scholarships and rocker and lighter and whatever. Um, frankly, it's a miracle given not, – not a miracle. When you got rocker and lighter, nothing's a miracle. But I'm just saying don't underrate the job they did because very little went right for them. Oh, in addition to that, you know, Ty Duvall and, and Harrison Ray moved on. And frankly, I bet you that was a scholarship thing where it was just hard for those kids to come back and afford the cost next year. So it's better right. for them to each take the $20,000 or whatever they got offered and moved on. I mean, the context just piles up on this year and how difficult it was for them to get to where they were and and the ways that this could have gone differently that could have been pretty spectacular. Yeah, and, and it just, sometimes it does become a, a numbers game definitely for those guys, and it sounds like that was the case with them because it's not easy as, as uh, the Mississippi State fans don't feel, you know, they don't realize that it costs $80,000 now to go to Vanderbilt uh, as opposed to the advantages that they get with all their athletes getting in-state tuition, but, but that's another show. Um, and how that most Vanderbilt play, I don't, there's no, I don't think David Price was even on a full ride and that's what, but that, I'm, I'm going down a road. I don't want to go, but um, yeah. So th- that does have to, a, a big contribute to all that as far as you just managing the money. And this is what I mentioned 10 minutes ago, just how hard it is to know just how much money you have, how much money you're dealing with and slicing and dicing these scholarships. It gets to be, that's one of the huge factors as far as guys coming back. All right, a few more questions, and I'll get you out of here. Dorking wants to know, what does our starting rotation look like next year? <laughs> uh, Dorking, man, that's that's a tough one because of all the reasons why I mentioned, I mean, you, you would like to think that Christian Little would be one of the three, so that's the easy one. I think anything after that, because you've got some outstanding freshmen who, who could press uh, press for time there on the mound, although it's – You'd rather have some guys of experience, you know. You would think Riley Little, and then you, you know, is Hloboki a guy a candidate? Is Doolin a candidate? You know what? You see, there's several there, but I can give you two that I think would be front runners. But that would just be literally throwing darts right now because you you've got to under consideration some really good freshmen coming in too that could press just like they've pressed the last couple years. And he would have thought that. You know, every year it seems like there's a Jack Leiter and there's a Christian Little and there's a, you know, you can go on and on and on. Um, and so you would like to think that one of those guys would, the stud freshman coming in would press for a possible third spot. But that it'll be very, very competitive. And I think it won't be because of a lack of a talent, but I think it might take a while to sift through that and find out who that guy will be. And that's why they, it's good that they play these fall games. Now I'm not sure what they're planning on doing. If they're, you know, Oklahoma state's going to come here maybe you could possibly, you know, I know he has a good relationship with, you know, Tulane. If they maybe, I've always wondered if they could do something with Tulane um, based on his relationship with Jewett. I think Jewett's still at Tulane, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just where you have those relationships with, Corbin has, uh, I think it's, I'm, I'm, I would like to think that they would have a little three, four game series like they've done the last couple of years and uh, doing that. You know, I, I meant to mention this. I'm not so sure Laboki will be back or not, will be back to really pitch big innings for them this year because of the wind, yeah. when the injury happened. No, Doolin, I would think they would have. The wild card in this is Ethan Smith because Ethan Smith has put enough out there. Yeah, that he could get drafted. You, you never know when a, an organization is going to jump up and take somebody, or, or maybe it doesn't. He comes back and says, 
hey, I'll because I could see Ethan Smith coming back next year and having one of those seasons where he could sign for for maybe five hundred thousand dollars with a good year in the starting rotation. So that's another one. But you know, here's the other thing. I was just thinking of this. Like we're sitting there going, well, okay, this should be easy. Little should be there one. Riley should be there too, and then and then fill in with any number of other people, right? How many years in a row is it? I mean, he's been doing this since maybe 2014. Like, you say, okay, well, it's obvious they've got the three. It's this guy, that guy, and that guy. And you look up, and on opening weekend, he's rolling out maybe one or two of those guys. Never all three. And sometimes, you know, he'll, he'll put a Fulmer in the bullpen and a Bueller in the midweek. You think you know what he might do, what might make sense, but they have a way of experimenting and, and shifting this over here for that. And sometimes I don't necessarily agree with it, uh, but it has set them up pretty well for postseason in recent years. So even if you think you know what they're going to do, when is the last time that, that what that you thought made sense to you on paper was what he did with his rotation? Because well, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. And, and it's it's uh, I think it shows to the competition and the talent they bring in. And, and I mean, my goodness, you know, I forgot all about Ethan Smith. Not that he was an afterthought, but you're exactly right. I mean, he's a he's a talented arm that if he comes back, could push uh, could push for one of those three rotations. I mean, I think he's elect he's got electric stuff when he's on and he's healthy. And you know, it could be a situation with money for him, or you know, there's plenty of Vanderbilt players out there who have who are pitching in in high AAA ball and AAA ball, AA ball, or even the big leagues. They've been in the past decade, people who hardly threw here at Vanderbilt, they hardly sniffed it here, and they're throwing in big league baseball. It's just a matter of how cyclical, you know, things go as far as opportunities, injuries, other people on the staff. There's plenty of those guys around right now playing pro ball that have have made the big team, and you sit there and go, wait a minute, that guy played? That guy, how many innings did he pitch? And that happens a lot, and it's just for not. I don't think it's a necessary reason that Corbin and Brownie missed on them. I think it's a lot of has to do with timing and, and and when they get their opportunities and and they develop. And one of them might have to have arm surgery. That slowed them down. Next thing you know, they they get healthy, they start getting the experience, and so there's a lot of teams, as you mentioned, that some teams will take a flyer on somebody who's pitched. 15, 16 innings in their career at Vanderbilt, and they'll take a chance on them, and they flourish. Next question. Uh, I think this is also from Gore King. What position do you think Spencer Jones plays next year? Hmm. Well, uh, I, I could see him. I'd love to see him on the mound, right, <laughs> uh, based on what he's – I mean, did, did you see what he did in high school? Were you aware of what he did in high school? Uh, I mean, I know he was considered a stud two-way prospect both ways. It sounds to me like he's looking maybe to make himself more as a hitter. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, the kids, that's another thing. This kid, any other program in the country, he would have been their marquee pitching recruit. He's not throwing a pitch in two years at Vanderbilt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he looks the part. You know, he's six seven guy. Uh, you know, you would like to wonder if he could be a guy who could play first or, you know, definitely on the DH side. I'm not sure if he has the range to be in the outfield, uh, and, and and I know he's got the arm, but uh, when he's healthy, if he he's not healthy enough to pitch, you wonder if he has that strong of an arm to throw deep from the outfield. But um, you know, definitely DH. I'm, I could wonder if he's ever played any, you know, consistent first base where he could be an everyday guy out there. But I would love to have him. You looked at this guy did. I mean, once I said this, coach told me he was he was one of the top 100 pitching prospects, 97, 96, 97 miles an hour from the left side. It can it just to have a guy like that. Now, there's very few of those guys out there anymore. He played two way. And you just wonder if he's going to be a guy who has to make that decision or they're going to make it for him of where they want him to play. I'm going to say he plays in the outfield somewhere. No, Bradfield's not going anywhere. The reason is that kid can run like a deer. Yeah, oh, he's fast. And I think you waste a lot of that speed at first. We did see him play first uh, to open last year. That was kind of a disaster. Yeah. Uh, but that was also his first few games as a freshman. He's not going to be playing center for, for Bradfield reasons, but I, I think you put him on one of the corners. And I, I would presume 
that if he was a stud pitcher in high school, he's got the arm to play right and play it pretty well. Yeah, just this weather, it's this weather, the range as far as, you know, I don't even know if he's thrown any bullpens in the last year. Yeah, that's stuff that we just don't know. I'm sure it could be asked, but just how uh, he could how he could do from that position to be a guy who could step in and give you a few innings because you can never have too few of pitchers. But as I mentioned, it, it is difficult to, in this day and age, you rarely see it on the college side of a guy who, who does both pitching and is a, it's a two-way player. All right, last question from Dor King. I think we mostly hit this, but why do you think they hit so poorly in Omaha? Well, it, they were the worst, the poorest hitting team out there, without a doubt. You saw some averages, Chris, plummet. I mean, what we were looking at, uh, it was just all the way across the board. I mean, I mentioned a team in the, in the three games out there. They averaged before, after game two, it was five hits a game, and they were striking out. Uh, you know, a pretty consistent. I think they had 46 strikeouts in two games or in three games out there since there was a three or four game period. Uh, not a lot of hits, and of course the the one hit, um, the the one hit in the in the game three lowers that average as far as number of hits in the championship series. I, I just think it was a guy's pressing. I think we had guys. Um, got in their head a little bit of course they're playing some really good pitching now let's let's don't let's don't discount that and we i said that on the last podcast when you get out to omaha you're going to see some dominant arms and they did so but this is a consistency thing that we've seen for what probably 30 45 days the last 30 45 days that it just wasn't there you take away the first inning that seven run inning in game one we had three hits that got the seven runs a lot of that had to do, the seven runs had to do with two hits batsmen, uh, a walk, and then you have to have the big blast to go with that, contribute to that. But there's only three hits. So really we had one productive inning and three games in the championship series. So it does show a big picture uh, thing. And, and, man, we could write a book on this and just as far as what I think it could be, guys pressing too much guys going for big power numbers, not going the opposite way, not not taking the ball to, uh, to outside pitch the opposite way, like I mentioned earlier in this broadcast. But I think it was a mixture of those things. I think they can get it fixed. I think the talent is there to get it fixed. Um, but it's going to have to be a mindset that sometimes lifting the ball out of the park is not the best thing, and they have to be more consistent of taking pitches where they're thrown and, and hitting the ball up the middle. All right, Chip, you could write a, write a book about real estate. Uh, we won't do that on the podcast, but I did want to give you a minute to promote what you do and, and tell folks a bit about the market and what you could do if anybody has real estate needs right now. Sure, Chris. Yeah, we're just, we're Vanderbilt folks. I would say that about our firm. Whit Clark, Steve Frederick, my brother and myself, the ownership group of Frederick and Clark Realty, all Vanderbilt graduates, uh, put an emphasis on that. I, I played baseball there. My late father who founded the firm was a, former basketball player in, in the 1950s and played in the first game at Memorial Gymnasium, dedicated that game. So we're proud Vanderbilt fans. That's first and foremost. Uh, we're going to take care of anybody. But, you know, if you're a Vanderbilt fan, uh, we're definitely uh, the, the firm for you here in Nashville for your real estate needs if you want to stay with those allegiances. We've been around since the early 60s. I always say, and this being their last podcast uh, for this regular season, that, uh, you know, this market is crazy and you need some support on your side for your real estate needs on the buy or the sell side. We are that firm. We have the experience. We have the tools necessary to guide you through it. It's, it's a scary process, more so really on the buy side right now than the sale side. It's a seller's market still. It will remain that way, although not as quite as hot as it's been. It's still red hot compared to what it was. You know, it's down a little bit from two months ago. So on the buy side, it's crazy, zany, nutty. You got to have somebody on your side who can help you navigate the market as far as multiple offers. And that's what uh, multiple offers, houses that are overpriced that you don't want to go down the road for uh, helping you on connecting you with inspectors and mortgage lenders and all that. We have the ability to do that. So great website. It's Clark. Dot com. You can check us out there. You can personally give me a call or you can call Whit Clark and my brother Steve at 615-327-4800. We'd like to help some Vanderbilt folks to listen to the podcast. 
either on the buy or sell side, we're there for you. Doesn't matter if your house is a hundred thousand dollar house or a ten million dollar house, we're there to help you. So glad talking with you this year of the regular season, Chris. I'm sorry it didn't work out the way we hoped, but in reality, uh, I think as I mentioned, the first thing, the the better team won this year. I think this team will be back sooner than later, if not next year, and hopefully we can get it done. Well, and I add one more thing. If, if you deal with Chip, uh, you get to deal with a, a little bit of a celebrity, from what I understand. You were, you're just getting <laughs> overrun with the tension in Omaha, weren't you? <laughs> I will say, for those listening, I, I do appreciate, and, and I'm sorry you didn't get to make it, Chris. Uh, I, I haven't been. My kids, um, laughingly, you say the celebrity thing. My kids didn't know uh, really what to think when I had several people come up to me at the Vanderbilt gatherings and say they mentioned that, that they listen to the podcast. So that's a tribute to you and what you do. I think some some gentleman came up to me um, game three and he said he just had to have Chris get him through the day out here. He was nervous about the game and was glad we did one out there. So it's a it's a tribute to what you do. And I know that you uh, have put, uh, uh, you know, many, many years in doing this and I enjoy doing them with you. But if, if you were out there, you would have been the celebrity. I, I, I think it was just because of my name tag and the fact that they, you know, we've been doing these. But, um, yeah, I do want to thank all the people out there who mentioned that they listen. I think it's more than you think um, that uh, enjoy these and to try to get some insight into uh, Vanderbilt baseball and, and uh, Vanderbilt athletics in general. Well, you're only as good as the people who join you on your show. I, I've never – entertain the idea of doing this as a one-man show i'm just not good enough to carry one on my own uh and i don't say that with false humility i'm just not there's there's a the small list of people who can do that it's like jim rome and and, and god knows who else and, and i'm not those guys but uh in all seriousness I, i've had some great people who join me on the show you Bass, mitch light and i, I appreciate your role in this it's been a lot of fun to do and let's try to do if we can find the time maybe one of these before the draft to preview it and perhaps one after it once it is wrapped up yeah it'd be good to kind of see of course which we're not going to know the inner workings as far as roster management uh how that goes but it, it will be very interesting to see who goes who kind of feels like that you know, the writing's on the wall that maybe they need to go somewhere else what happens with the portal I don't think we've even begun, you know, you got to remember folks, the portal works both ways. And this is the first time that Corbin and staff have, have looked at that. I'm not, I don't really have a, I, I don't have a feel as far as how they would see it on incoming players yet. Uh, and because we haven't been faced with it yet. So that's going to be something to watch. As I mentioned uh, earlier, who, if there could be any incoming help that this team needs on an immediate basis if somebody wants to join this team and believes because I, I think they would be very very careful as far as who they brought in it's gonna have to be somebody who has a, you know get, likes their system and appreciates the way they coach because it's not for everybody you know it's like alabama football and i say this with all sincerity you know alabama football does not recruit they choose and, and i think vanderbilt's gotten to the point where they do the same you just don't want to take anybody and quite frankly this this situation this staff this university is not for everybody it's just not talent it, it is it is not for every single player in america that just happens to be good you got to be the right player with the right disposition to go along with your talent to join so that'll be interesting to see chip thanks a bunch and uh, we'll look forward to doing this again soon all right chris take care all right he's chip frederick i'm chris lee thank you for listening to the vandy sports podcast